This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Everything Tom, Richard and myself have been up to on Friday, February the 24th, which is one year since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've been having a look at what it has meant for the global economy and different markets, including the energy market, with Amina Baker, the Deputy Bureau Chief and Chief OPEC Correspondent at the Energy Intelligence Group. We've also had a look at what it's meant for soft commodities, namely food and food prices, with Al Fullerton from the Tribeca 2050 Fund, speaking to us this morning live from Queensland in Australia. And we've been looking at one of the other big stories of the week, the Adnoc Gas IPO, on track to be the ADX's largest IPO ever. We've been speaking to the CEO of Adnoc Gas, Ahmed Alebri. We are marking the first anniversary of the war in Ukraine today. Kristalina Georgieva has been in Ukraine over the past few days, days meeting with President Zelensky and analysing the state of the Ukrainian economy. This is what she had to say. She is, of course, the managing director of the IMF. My uh, uh, most important takeaway from the visit uh, to Ukraine uh, is that uh, the Ukrainian economy is functioning and that Ukrainian people are strong. We've also been speaking, Brandy, to Katija Hack, Chief Economist, Emirates MBD here in Dubai. Yeah, we have indeed. Obviously, um, the human toll is uh, the priority, but we are the business breakfast, so we are looking um, at the way that it has been raising costs for people. And Katija Hack has been speaking to us about the key economic takeaways. The broadest economic consequence of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent sanctions on Russian oil exports has been the impact on inflation through much higher food and energy prices in the first half of last year. This contributed to the unprecedented hiking in global interest rates and also raised the issue of energy security, along with what we'd been seeing about the diversification of supply chains more generally, which had been happening since the pandemic. So both of these issues will continue to have an impact on investment and trade for many, many years to come. The energy shock will probably also accelerate the transition away from hydrocarbons in the developed economies to more cleaner uh, energy sources. And on the subject, Tom, of the energy shock that Katija mentioned there, who have we got in the green room? Uh, Amina Bakker is waiting patiently in the green room from Energy Intelligence Group. We'll be joining us uh, momentarily, around about 15 minutes' time, to talk through uh, the impact that uh, the... Russia-Ukraine war is having uh, on the energy market and has had, of the course, of the last 12 months. The good news, if there is any, is that food prices have come down since the peaks seen in May, June, July and August of last year. The United Nations tracks global food prices. The Food and Agriculture Organization has an index just before the invasion of Ukraine. It was at around about 130 points. It spiked at 160 points. In the second half, in the first half of this year, but it's now back to about 130 points. So back to around about where it was this time last year. We were talking about food price inflation earlier on this week with Alan Smith, the chief executive officer of Agthea Group, a multi-billion dirham food production company based here in the UAE. Of course, the Gulf food event has been happening here in the UAE. He said food price inflation has eased, but prices are still slightly elevated. I think what we're experiencing is we still see inflation 
pressure coming for the first half of the year. Hopefully we'll start to see that settle down in the second half of the year. A lot of commodities spiked in second quarter, third quarter last year. We've seen them soften. But for us, we're still seeing costs in, in Q1 of this year versus the first quarter of last year elevated. So expect inflation for some time, but certainly the outlook is more positive as the year progresses. When you say elevated, what might be the difference in cost Q1 this year to last year? Around 20, uh, sorry, around 10% different versus Q1 last year. So in the middle of the year, I think some of our commodities were spiking to the extent of 30 to 40%. We've seen that soften. But certainly on our input costs, we're still 10 to 15 percent above where we were in the first quarter last year. Alan Smith, chief executive of the food company Agthea. Of course, uh, so many Russian people have moved to Dubai either temporarily or permanently over the past year. It has had an impact on the economy here in the UAE and in particular the real estate market. Alessia Sheglova is managing director of Dacha Real Estate here in Dubai. And we asked her to quantify the difference when it comes to Russian buyers March 21, March 20. 22 and March 2023. Uh, definitely, if we look, a lot of buyers are buying through developers, so off-plan properties, and uh, Russians were not even the top five back in 2021, but now most of developers are reporting that the nationality of their top five buyers, one of them is Russians. And what is being bought? What's the sweet spot when it comes for Russians coming into Dubai and buying real estate? Because of the focus we have, we focus on Blue Waters, Palm Jumeirah. So, of course, it's the higher end uh, product. Uh, it's between $1 million to $2 million. So 3.5 million dirhams to 7 million dirhams is the average. But, of course, it goes uh, much higher and sometimes lower. A lot of Russian buyers are just buying something for 750,000 dirhams to a million dirhams in order to get the resident visa here. As the real estate broker Alessia Sheglova. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. As we've been saying throughout the course of this morning, today marks exactly one year since Russia invaded Ukraine on February the 24th. 2022, turning global markets on their head. We've been speaking about uh, the uh, cost uh, of uh, real estate here in the UAE, which has had an impact uh, here uh, as a result of that. Uh, a lot of people moving to the UAE. We've talked about food prices, we've talked about inflation, uh, but one market that really has been affected is energy. Big focus on that now and to doing that, exactly that for us, Deputy Bureau Chief and Chief OPEC Correspondent at Energy Intelligence Group, Amina Becker joins us live here in studio. Amina, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Tom. Let's start with Russia, if we can. In fact, a bit of breaking news over the course of the last uh, 24 hour. Russia planning to cut oil exports from its western ports by up to 25% next month, as opposed to the numbers that went out this month, exceeding its announced production cuts in a bid to lift prices for its oil. Uh, that's according to uh, sources in the Russian oil market at the moment. That's been a recurring theme throughout the last 12 months. In fact, the first knee-jerk reaction from Russia uh, after the international sanctions was to cut oil exports. How much of an impact has that had on the international market in the last 12 months? Yeah, Tom, this is something that we were expecting since December. I mean, even uh, officials from Russia said that they were going to be cutting their oil production. Um, they're a little bit cornered right now. That's why we heard about the cut of 500,000 barrels per day. Um, and the idea of that is that Russia really wants to focus on narrowing the discounts that they're offering to Asia. The discounts were almost reaching $40 per barrel. 
barrel. It's a huge discount on the barrel. And they want to narrow that to $20 to $25. So the objective of cutting production, slightly cutting exports, it's to narrow that uh, discount range in order for them to gain more revenues. Uh, we expect Russia to continue uh, cutting their uh, their production. In fact, at Energy Intelligence, we expect overall production to fall by around 1.2 million barrels a day. What that does to for the price? Uh, well, you would think it would it would raise prices, uh, and theoretically, it adds a little bit more spare capacity. But that's on paper. Um, I think Russia's. A little bit co- cornered, but at the same time, their their strategy is uh, is focused around revenues, making the most revenues for uh, for their economy. Let's talk about that revenue if we can. Uh, and looking at the year that was the the twelve months since the invasion, eighty two ninety is where um, oil sits at this morning as well. We've seen fluctuations in the market over the last twelve months. Have we seen as much fluctuation as was predicted or as, as was expected? Uh, the markets have been volatile, but I would say lately, I mean, we've been seeing Brent stay in that 80s range. And this is thanks to the OPEC plus policy. They've been keeping a very, very steady hand on policy. In fact, I mean, for this year, um, we've heard from Gulf officials ver- uh, various times that they're going to be keeping this 2 million barrel per day cut until the end of the year and not changing it. So that adds a, le- a level of predictability uh, to the market. So um, that's to kind of counter the volatility that we're seeing. We've looked at it therefore from, I mean, yeah, just one more on that in terms of the overall impact rather than the impact we're seeing today, the overall impact that we've seen in terms of the sort of energy crisis that was predicted across Europe and other parts of the world as a result of the sanctions that were imposed on Russia and of course the cut in their production as well. Has that come to fruition as expected as well, the problems we were expecting? Well, I would say that Europe managed to uh, avert a complete crisis in the winter. They did have enough stocks to kind of counter what was happening. But the the risk remains very, very high. It's not just about countering one winter. How about this winter? Um, And because of the inflation that you mentioned, Tom, yes, people are seeing that the pace of the transition should move faster and encouraging investment in um, solar, wind, etc. But inflation is keeping that pace at a slower rate than than expected. So this is really, I mean, this this whole crisis brings energy security to the forefront of everything and just puts a lot of importance on continuing investment in the upstream sector. And this is something that uh, I think Europe has uh, has realized that it's important to uh, continue investments because of its reliance on, on hydrocarbons for the time being. Let's talk gas for a moment, if we can, as well. Again, volatile market in terms of the prices, probably more volatile, especially uh, given the predictions for a cold winter, which really haven't come to fruition over in Europe thus far. However, there have been pipeline problems when it comes to uh, gas uh, and, of course, uh, LNG very much coming to the forum and into the narrative and the conversation as well. And again, this sort of solutions out of adversity. We've seen Germany and other countries in Europe reacting to the concerns, building LNG ports, which were non-existent, uh, out of nothing almost, in in a matter of months as well. Again, are we seeing solutions to a problem that hadn't really been thought about a year ago? I think um, Europe has 
relied too much on Russia without thinking a plan through of, of plan B. I mean, right now you're seeing, yes, everybody's scrambling to find supplies yeah. outside of uh, uh, Russia. But uh, I'll just point you back to something that uh, the Qatari energy minister uh, said when uh, he was in Abu Dhabi earlier this year. He said, eventually, Russian gas supplies will return to Europe because there's no way out of it. Uh, even Qatar, the largest LNG exporter in the world, cannot fulfill all the orders, all of the demand that's needed. So it's just a matter of a political solution. And eventually, Russian gas supplies, um, he expects, would return to Europe. We focused a lot on Russian supply of energy sources, or cutting of the supply of those energy sources. What about the sanctions? Uh, Because again, as soon as the invasion happened, sanctions were the first reaction from the international community, led by the US, led by NATO, uh, and, and of course, the EU. Have the sanctions worked? Till now, I mean, uh, some European officials are declaring a victory because they're seeing some signs, uh, as we saw, that Russia is cutting some of its production. They're saying that this is a result of the sanctions. and uh, But sanctions take time to work. And we can't really... Um, rule that it's a complete success right now. But I can tell you that Russia has been countering them quite well, too. And Russia has an economy somewhat built for war. They know how to uh, move around the sanctions. And uh, you you have, I mean, situations where a lot of this oil is going into Asia. They're discounting. So all of these strategies... Um, They're working. Yeah, interesting article I was reading this morning uh, on Sky News about Russia spending basically the last <laughs> 10 years before the invasion sanction-proofing its economy. There's something in that, isn't there? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, very quick, let's look to 23 if we can. Obviously, a lot of questions uh, and certain answers from 2022. What are the things that you and your colleagues be looking ahead to with regards to Russia-Ukraine into 2023 moving forward? Well, we've been looking, of course, at the possibility of uh, a further drop in uh, in Russian supply. Uh, what that means is OPEC Plus going to be stepping in uh, to replace that supply. That's still unclear. I mean, for the time being, as I said, they're probably going to keep policies uh, steady. We've been looking at prices very closely. We're noticing that $80 to $90 is the new $60 to $70. Uh, inflation is here to stay uh, and uh, a supply crunch, basically, because spare capacity is still very, very tight. 30 seconds left with you. COP28, year of sustainability, obviously a lot of focus by the end of the year. Is the war hurting the clean energy transition that was very much top of the agenda? I think it's encouraging a lot of uh, political movement and encouragement of, of governments to go in that direction. But you have inflation that's uh, also hurting that uh, pace of the transition. What the UAE and other Gulf states is doing is uh, is exceptional, re- really. They're trying to balance out between investing in the upstream, but at the same time using uh, the, the windfall of that investment to uh, uh, into uh, renewable energy projects. So I think that's the way to go. It's the parallel approach. It's not abandoning one for the other. I mean, can't thank you enough. Thanks so much indeed for joining us live here in studio. Amina Becker is the Deputy Bureau Chief and the Chief OPEC Correspondent at Energy Intelligence Group. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Where we continue our economic look this morning about the impact on the evasion of Ukraine on everything from fuel prices to markets. We are looking now at what it means for food prices or what it has been. Very pleased to be joined by Al Fullerton. He's Head of Strategy at the Tribeca Fund 2050, which invests into food and agriculture. And he joins us live from Queensland, Australia. Al, good morning. Good morning, Brandy. How are you? I am well. Let's put 
what the uh, war in Ukraine has meant for food prices into perspective, because, of course, we are here dealing with one crisis on top of the other. Where were we with food prices anyway as a result of COVID? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. And, and, you know, it did add sort of more fuel to the fire. Um, 2020 COVID uh, down here in Australia and indeed globally saw significant uh, global inflationary pressures on food, um, significant supply chain disruptions and a real global focus around food security and sustainability as supply chains were cut off. So in Australia, um, we had that with a number of trading partners. Um, but at the same time, we were actually in the middle of um, a bumper run with uh, beef and um, prices and grain prices because we'd had a lot of rain and the drought actually broke at the end of 2019. So um, there was already supply chain disruptions and inflationary pressures. And then the war in uh, Ukraine um, that kicked off a year ago sent supply chain shocks globally. And while they, Russia and, and, and Ukraine are relatively big players in certain commodities, it actually just sent a shock um, to, I think, what was already a fragile market globally anyway. Um, and the repercussions have been seen uh, uh, in, in, in many other areas, including fertiliser and access to grain, but also just overall confidence in global food and agricultural supply. Well, let's break that down because quite a lot in there. As you say, there were a couple of commodities um, particularly hard hit directly by the war. You had Russia and Ukraine providing about 40% of the world's wheat and about 25% of its sunflower oil. How do price spikes from those two commodities echo out across the food chain? I mean, I think because wheat, for example, obviously it's a a staple diet for many lower incomes, um, had a real... Uh, issue uh, and repercussions into people whose budgets um, didn't allow for price elasticity. elasticity. So, um, you know, when half of their their, um, their weekly paycheck is going on food, a 15% rise is is significant. Um, so that was a real concern there. And I think also, and I'm no means an expert in the European um, or sort of MENA markets, but I believe a lot of that supply was going to, um, to you know, to MENA, to to Africa and, and, to, uh, and to those sort of places where you probably didn't have as, as much access to um, substitutes and alternatives. Um, you know, there, there was a pickup by other, uh, you know, exporters, US, Australia, exporting the, you know, their wheat to other markets. But obviously at the same time, there were uh, inflationary pressures that were occurring. So um, sunflower oil, I think there are a number of substitutes out there that you could switch to other plant oils. Um, I'm not a specialist in that, in that particular vertical, but there's probably less in the wheat space that you could pivot to. Um, a big repercussion that we've seen on, in, in, in this part of the world was around the fertiliser um, prices because that was something where you know, Russia were a major exporter of fertiliser and that's seen some significant repercussions um, because obviously that is the precursor to growing the crop um, as well. So you know, without one, you, you don't get the other or indeed you may not, maybe don't get the yields that you need. What have we seen happen to fertiliser prices since fertiliser, of course, made out of of nitrogen, so there is a hydrocarbon connection there. We know that gas prices have returned to pre-invasion levels. Have fertiliser? So the fertiliser prices haven't. They've run pretty hard. Like I use the US as an example where there's been quite a lot of stockpiling. And and what we've seen in places like the US is twofold. One is there's a relative amount of stockpiling going on. Two, it's a drought and there's some dry conditions over there. So the, the requirement for... Um, adding synthetics is probably heightened. But on the agricultural innovation side, what we started to see more and more of is precision fertiliser application. So historically, while you might be covering your entire paddock, um, you know, with your nitrogen or your phosphate, now what we're doing is highly specific precision fertiliser application. 
and really maximising or minimising the usage, but maximising the efficiency. So we're seeing some ag agricultural technology ramping up um, to kind of counter um, the the you know the the supply chain shocks and the inflationary pressures. Where are we now in terms of the cost of food? We know that we have have come down um, from those highs that we hit in the middle of the year, but we're not quite back to normal, are we? No, we're not. No, and and again, going back to that point, I, I kind of see three three levels. One, COVID, the supply chain shock still recovering from that. Two, the war in Ukraine. Three, this whole decarbonisation, the global decarbonisation movement, which um, you know around ESG, around climate, around the Paris, um, you know, the the trying to to uh, be reducing um, our carbon emission levels, and some of these work against each other because if you're trying to become a cleaner, greener. Um, commodity, uh, it comes at an inflationary cost and inflationary pressure. And at the same time, on the other, you know, on the other side of the coin, you have to be feeding people and have to be supplying um, uh, these commodities globally. So while everyone has quite robust um, decarbonisation focuses for 2030 and right up to 2050, at the same time, it's almost like you're in a tug of war versus having to feed people um, and 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 um, you know, sort of. Uh, Distributing these commodities globally, and and that you know, you touched on before around the the energy crisis too. Or well, this is a key another catalyst for the energy crisis, where we're trying to become cleaner and greener. But you've seen coal make a huge resurgence because there's also just the human need for food and, uh, and electricity, um, and you can't jeopardise those regardless of of you know potential 2030, 2050 decarbonisation targets. How long does it actually take for people in supermarkets to feel prices coming down? Because even though we will hear from different indices, for example, different measurements that they're falling. A lot of this stuff is sold on very long-term contracts, isn't it? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm not a procurement specialist. So what I would say at the moment, giving you an example from home, is that beef prices are at an all-time high. So people have been switching to something like chicken um, for alternative protein sources. Um, so when a commodity gets too expensive, people look for substitutes or alternatives, um, especially if they're on a budget. Um, you know, we're quite involved with innovation in food and agriculture as an investment um, space. We're seeing a lot of alternative proteins coming through the market. We're seeing a lot of ways that we can feed this growing population. Because I forget, we've got all these these um, pressures with um, with supply chain disruptions and um, with the war and with decarbonisation. But we've also got a, a, a changing climatic environment. So we've got drought, we've got floods, we've got all these things happening, and that's you know the nature of agriculture. So in terms of how those supply chains are passed on to the consumer, look, I think they are feeling it. We're also in an inflationary environment, so we um, you know we're having rate hikes. Um, so interest rates are on the rise. Um, so, you know, people are feeling feeling a pinch. And I think that goes back to, you know, switching out of certain proteins for other proteins, what substitutes are there. There's a real um, evolving food and agricultural innovation um, happening globally um, to potentially um, counteract some of these, these movements. But, look, I do think people are, are certainly feeling the, the, the pinch um, for it. And I think innovation is um, is ramping up to try and solve some of these sort of systemic longer-term issues. 30 seconds left with you. Does that mean, though, that the era of cheap food is over, Al? I suppose it's what you sort of define as cheap food, and I think I think it's not. I think the key focus in, in agriculture, um, for us, for example, really interested in seed genetics and yield increases. So I think we'll see consistent um, evolution of, um, of you know, yield increases, getting more from the same land, of plant health and nutrition um, like I said, seed genetics growing in more hostile conditions. So there's a whole evolution going on there about growing and increasing yield. We're also looking at alternative proteins, future food. So there's a whole subset that's going on there. 
So I think we're in an evolutionary phase where, um, and we're also, sorry, lastly, this pivot away from growing human food to provide for animals. Mm -hmm. So how can we actually utilise that? So, yes, so I I feel like there's going to be new trends uh, and new opportunities. Thank you so much for joining us at extremely short notice this morning. Al Fullerton, Head of Strategy at Tribeca Fund 2050. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Right, looking at one of the biggest stories of the week. Uh, the Adnoc gas subscription for its IPO is underway. Very pleased to be speaking this morning to the CEO of Adnoc Gas, Ahmed Alebri. Ahmed, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning and thank you for having me with you. Why are you taking Adnoc Gas public? What's the strategy behind the move? This is an opportunity for Adnoc to optimise its portfolio of assets and realise a value from a partial sale while providing trading liquidity in our shares and raising our profile with the international investment community. It's all come together extremely quickly. This IPO was only announced at the end of December. Uh, Why now and why so fast? There will be always an increasing role of a natural gas as a transition fuel in the future energy mix. And if we talk about why is now and why is fast, we are fully ready. And we did not see a reason to delay internal preparation for both the formation and listing of Adnoc gas has been ongoing for some time, despite the public announcement on taking place this month. The timetable has provided ample time for us to carefully plan and present the IBO potential and institutional investors, while also providing a time for retail investors and our employees to consider the exciting opportunity. We believe this is the optimal time to be proceeding with an IBO with a healthy demands dynamics in the local capital market, and we are already seeing a very positive signals from the investment community. Well, it's a very interesting time to be taking it forward. Um, we are looking at the effect this morning on the war on Ukraine, on energy prices and other commodities. And of course, 2022 was an absolutely exceptional year for gas prices, all times high at one point, but dropping 60% from those highs since the middle of the year. Talk to me about what that means for your balance sheet, how correlated, uh, how correlated rather the price of gas is to how well Adnoc gas does. We have a secure and insulated business as we are supplying over a 60% of the national demands of a gas requirement. So we have a long contracts here in the country up to 25 years. But we are insulated from a perspective of financials. And our numbers last year showed a very strong financial aspects when it comes to the net profit, a bit down, a bit the margin. Uh, how much of the flow of gas into to Europe that's being uh, taken out or capped, sanctioned um, as a result of the war, can the, the UAE replace? What are the possibilities there? Let me be optimistic in this answer. We have recently shipped a cargo to Germany that shows that Adnoc and Adnogaz is a reliable producer of a gas and also sending the gas to the market whenever is needed. And our track record of 45 years in the market shows how internally in the country and internationally we are a reliable producer to our partners. Well, let's look at your plans going forward. What provisions um, and what investment are you making for an energy transition as a hydrocarbon company? For now, we are very excited of floating this 4% stake 
in the market for Adma gas. And in the future, if there are any opportunities that will help to optimize and also get into the market with a strong financials, we will be there. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about it, though? I mean, the UAE obviously has announced its net zero targets, as indeed uh, will have many of your customers around the world. What does that all mean for you? For us, we are now having a roadmaps for our decarbonization, which entails that we will have an abatement of 25% of the, the gases and the emissions by 2030. And we will have the overarching net zero by 2050 as an overall also Adno group of companies alongside with Adno Gas. What about beyond net zero, though? What about uh, beyond just making sure that it's balanced and actually making sure that it's clean energy? How green can a gas company get? This is a very exciting journey that we are now taking and undergoing also. We started already this years ago by having, let's say, first of all, having a green energy comes to our premises from last year. And our decarbonization roadmap shows that from now until the up- upcoming two decades, we will be having the whatever it takes when it comes to abate emissions and be within the green community. Let's have a look at the company that people will be buying into. Um, We are, of course, um, still to get your first ever public results once you list, but your pro forma financials, what you've seen in 2022, what kind of shape is Adnok Gas in? Adnok Gas is a very strong country. And just let me give you some financial highlights of the company performance of the year 2022. To give you an idea of the scale and the performance basis, we generated adjusted revenue of a 21 billion for the 10 months ending 31st of October 2022. This drove adjusted EBITDA of 7.5 billion for the same period with an adjusted EBITDA margin of 35% and a net income of a 4.2 billion US dollars. These very healthy margins enable a significant dividends capacity. We intend to distribute cash dividends twice yearly and are targeting total dividends of 3.25 billion US dollars for the year 2023. And how do you plan to grow? Are there any plans for international acquisitions? We will not rule out the international acquisitions. However, when the time comes, we will study, we'll adjust, and we'll take the right decision at the right environment, at the right place. What kind of thing could you be interested in? What kind of thing do you need? As of now, we are very excited to go for listing. And during the upcoming weeks, you will hear much more from us when it comes to Adno Gas and the listed company and the biggest listing in the UAE and the region when it comes to Adno Gas. How big could that listing get? Your shares were obviously covered within hours of the IPO opening. Could we see um, the offering expanded? Could we see more shares being offered? At the time, we are very excited again for what has been done from yesterday and onwards. And we will see in the upcoming days how things are going and we will be announcing by 13th of March where we are in terms of the listing and how we already finalised successfully and strongly the listing of Adno Gas. Okay, well let me ask a, a, a different question then. What will the decision on whether to increase the percentage from 4% be based on? What kind of things will you be considering? As a matter of fact, the 4% now we are talking about is a huge number when it comes to Adno Gas. We are offering almost 3 billion plus shares in the market, which is a very huge number. And when we talk about 4%, 
with this capacity of the plant itself and the adenoid gas, it's a, a very massive number. In the future, we will not rule any kind of business opportunity that will arise to the company itself. Well, thanks so much for joining us this morning. The CEO of Ednot Guess, uh, the subscription period is live at the moment um, for their IPO. Ahmed Mohammed Al Ebri joining us on Teams this morning. We appreciate your time. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.